Hello and welcome to the only podcast that's all about Fort Meade, our community, and life in the military. I'm your host, Joe Nieves. And I'm your co-host, Sherry Kuiper, and you're listening to Fort Meade Declassified. You've got the tattoos, but you don't look like Joe. <laughs> that's right. Hey, Sherry. It's, it's It's Ben Rogers here again, replacing Joe this time, not Sherry Kuiper. Right. Yes, I'm back. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, welcome back, Sherry. We're yeah. glad to have you back, and and uh, I'm here again for another episode uh, to fill in for Joe, and I'm happy to do so. Awesome. So Great. what have you all been up to? Well, you know, uh, I've got, um, I do have my post-pandemic vacation finally nice. planned, getting yes. that in the books. Are we finally there post-pandemic yeah, vacation time? Yeah, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it's time. I'm I'm vaccinated. My house, the family members are vaccinated. It's it's time to start uh, getting out, right, yeah. and, and okay. living a little bit. All right. Well, where are you, where are you going? So uh, I've got family members that, that are out west uh, in the region from Utah, California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh, and so we're going to do a big cross-country road trip. We're going to awesome. pack up the truck and, and head out on the road. And oh, we're gonna I thought take... you were going to go on the motorcycle. Oh, I... <laughs> I would love to, um, but we're going to bring our canines with us. Oh, so yeah. Sequoia's got to go with Sequoia's you. Sequoia's got to come with, yeah. you know. She's got to come out there. I got to take her to the Sequoia National those, Parks. and so she can sit. one of those little sit. side carts for the wife and the puppers to sit I in. I know, and, I mean, right? You're really not thinking this through, Ben. No, that's my that's my retirement plan. Okay. That's, that's going to come. there yet. Right. When uh, the hips start to give out a little bit more and the knees aren't doing so well, it's time for a sidecar. Big, one of those big cruiser, trike. Could be a trike. I'll probably cool. go with the sidecar thing because they're just, I think they're way cooler. Here, we need to bring those back. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder why they went away. I see them from time to time. Mm. Bo- I usually see them in museums. That's true. I, I've <laughs> mentioned Bob's BMW before. That's where I got my my motorcycle. Well, Bob, the proprietor there, he's a big sidecar fan. So every time I go up to that shop, there's some kind of cool-looking sidecar and either an old classic or a new one that they've manufactured to build. You know, they build out nice. a, a new a new vehicle sidecar. So. Sidecars are cool. Yes, they are. It should be a, a grand adventure and something, you know, just to kind of really stretch ourselves yes. after being cooped up for so long, you know? Yes, uh, I think going out west is a great idea. I just spent a month um, at Fort Bliss, Texas, which That's is why right. you were filling in for me. And Correct. I was working on a, a very interesting mission there, working with yeah. the... What were um, you doing? Unaccompanied children crossing uh, the border there in hmm. El Paso. And their um, office of refugee and resettlement which is part of dhhs Mm -hmm. they operate an emergency intake site actually on fort bliss Mm -hmm. uh, which you can google and read all about it in the news and everything and um, so i was there on behalf of the army and working on that mission which was very interesting Um, important mission important mission yeah very political mission so i'm not going to get too too crazy into it but um lots of good people down there doing some good work and uh, i think i can leave it at that um but one thing uh, I did get to do on, on the little free time I had was just kind of explore a bit down yeah. there. And I love the desert and uh-huh. uh, really loved being out there. I got a chance to go up to White Sands, New Mexico oh, one day. Cool. I rebelled a little bit my last day there and, <laughs> and did uh, this meeting I had to do. I just did it from my car nice. versus the hotel room. Yeah. Uh, I was like, what are they going to do? Send me home? Um, <laughs> no, it was, it was all good. Uh, but, you know, I'll tell you one thing I did miss was uh, cicadas. You did. You I did. did. You I missed, missed the whole. I come back and they're practically gone, and you they don't it. have cicadas in Texas. Uh, so I definitely 
Miss you missed out on Brood 10. This I, I did. once, a, not necessarily once in a lifetime, I'm just but. Finding their carcasses everywhere. Yeah, now you just. That's what I get to experience. <laughs> you just get to see the aftermath. Cicadas, ticks, mosquitoes, oh my. Bugs can be a pest, or maybe they just give you the creeps, but they're very important to our ecosystem, and some people find them quite fascinating. That includes the Army. Today, we are sitting down with Ben Pajak, the Chief Entomological Sciences Division Bioscience Program here on Fort Meade. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hi, Ben and Sherry. Hi. Hi. So, got to get right off the bat. Um, I am not a scientist, so what is entomology? Oh, entomology is the study of insect. They're mm -hmm. those things that will minimally have six legs. That's a major defining characteristic of insects. Also, as adults, they um, are, are made of this substance called chitin, hmm. which is a hard substance that makes up their exoskeleton. Hmm. So those are insects. They have a lot of relatives that um, we know about, like spiders and centipedes and millipedes, but they aren't technically um, insects. Interesting. So why is that important to the Army and, and mission readiness? The Army has always had a, a respect for insects and arthropods because historically, during conflict, there's been a huge proportion of uh, morbidity and mortality or death mm -hmm. and illness and injury uh, due to insects. In some mm -hmm. cases, in the early conflicts, more than maybe bombs and bullets. So mm -hmm. it's always been a concern and um, effort has been put into doing the best that the uh, armed forces can to protect the fighting force. What other agencies do you work with in this and why is that important? I'm, I'm delighted to be in this area because there's the Department of Agriculture, Beltsville Agricultural Research Center, which is just down the road that do a lot of entomology work as well as other agricultural research. There's FDA, there's NIH, very important organization. University of Maryland is right down the road as well, and they have a, a very strong entomology um, department that we've collaborated with, Maryland Department of Agriculture. So we're surrounded by um, a lot of great minds and institutions that um, we work closely with. So here on Fort Meade, are there any specific or unique species, uh, not necessarily just for Fort Meade, but this region? So yes, there, um, there's one uh, in particular, you know, it's hard to have favorites, but I will, I will say um, in our area, it, we have a type of beetle called the tiger beetle. Mm. And, That's um, a cool name. Yeah. Does it resemble, I, I assume? I, I believe it was given that uh, common name because if you look at it closely, it has some pretty formidable jaws, oh. and it's a predator. It preys on other insects. But mm. the thing I like about it, in the spring, walking on paths, you might see this little emerald thing fly ahead of you. Um, I have seen this I emerald have seen beetle. Those, those yeah. are so pretty. Super metallic, shiny, like. Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people not realize that that's a beetle. Yeah. And, um, that's one of my favorites. So, yeah, that's that's common. I see them on the Fort Meade trails when I go hiking. So, I'll just I'll just share that one with you. I'm gonna feel them. super smart next time you I see one. I'll be like <laughs> talking to my husband. I'll be like, do you know that's a tiger beetle? Yeah, flex your entomology that's skills. Right. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I'm learning so much right now, and I have seen those beetles, and they are yeah. so pretty. Yeah, especially when the sun catches them just right. Yeah. I used to get them in my yard all the time. Yeah. It's I'm impressive. getting chills just hearing you describe it because that's that's absolutely correct. Yeah. You know, 
have you had any encounters, Ben? Any encounters with um, insects on the installation? Any good bug stories that stick out to you? Outside this building is Berber Lake, and I, I like um, at lunchtime either jogging around it or walking around it. And a, f- a few years ago, in, in, in December, so it was cold, um, and a little bit of ice on the, uh, on the lake, as I was walking by, I noticed that, um, sadly, there was a dead beaver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have beavers on Fort yeah. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, I noted it, <clears throat> but it actually triggered a memory from my um, entomology course at the University of Maryland where my professor, um, Dr. Messersmith, said, you know, there, there's a really unusual beetle, we're talking about beetles again, mm-hmm. that lives its life in the fur of beavers. Wow. Mm. And somehow that memory came back, and I looked at it, and I go, well, there's a beaver. Mm-hmm. I wonder, <laughs> even though it might have been very uh, um, unlikely we're in the middle of December, um, whether there might be that beetle, which I had never seen before. So I, I went into the lab, got some gloves and some forceps or tweezers, and the beaver was half submerged. So I pulled it out of the water. And I gently started pushing the fur aside so that you can look down in the skin. Sure. And there were these little amber things that were crawling around. Oh, wow. Wow. And it was, it was the beaver beetle. Wow. It was the first time. I was so excited. I got my intern out, and we pulled as many of those beetles off. And we put them under the microscope and took pictures of them and did some checking. And uh, it hadn't been recorded in Anne Arundel County. Oh, wow. So we, um, we documented it and submitted it for the da- uh, database. And uh, so, yeah, my encounter with the beaver beetle. So with the, with the cicadas this year, did you learn anything new? I wanted to know more about how they produce their sound. Because I am interested in sound, as, mm-hmm. as um, I've always been interested in music and, and just nature sounds. Mm. So I took a closer look at, at, and it's the males that actually produce the sound, not mm. the females. Oh. And the males produce a sound with a special organ that they have that the females don't have. Mm. It's called a timbal. And um, I've heard them, but I never really, I wanted to see what that looked like. So right. I put it under the microscope and I... Uh, flipped on, flipped the wing up of a, of a nice, healthy male, and right there, big as day, is this circular white membrane with little ribs on it mm. that um, has muscles attached to it, and those muscles oscillate. They contract and expand, which causes that vibration, but not only that, their, their abdomens are hollowish. There's not much in them, mm. so that, that's the resonator, and wow. that's how come they get so loud and so prominent so huh. that's that's something that i really uh, enjoyed uh, learning more about kind of like an acoustic guitar a little bit huh yeah or a, a type of drum a cajon oh, right, or right. something you know yeah. like you have that amplification so it's not they're not making that sound with their mouth they have a special organ and it's just the males that's 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 yeah. fascinating well and i'm also sitting here listening to describe all this i'm like these cicadas are like this big. Like, how does all of that exist within them? And like, I'm not, I'm not trying to sound silly, but when we look at a, an insect, they're so small. And yeah. then hear about the cicada and how it makes it sound is so cool. Like loud how, sound too, yeah. Right. With such a they're small so device. <laughs> it's like they're yeah. very tiny, but man, they pack a punch. They do. Speaking of decibel levels, 
Do we know about the decibel levels that these that these uh, cicadas can produce? Yeah, that's funny you say that because that's one of the things, not this brood, the, uh, the previous brood, I was working at Fort Meade still, and my partners uh, in my organization, there are some folks that are uh, occupational health scientists and industrial hygienists, and some of them look at things like sound exposure in, in the workplace, mm-hmm. you know, industrial settings. So they have some cool equipment like, uh, you know, sound measuring devices. Yeah. So I, I managed to um, borrow one of those mm-hmm. to just to get an idea of what the cicadas were, were doing. And, yeah. you know, you got to be careful when you talk about decibels because it depends, you know, where you're positioned, where mm-hmm. it's pointing and, and all that. But we did um, get readings in excess of 80 dB, which some have described as close to being like a jet engine oh, wow. um, magnitude. But this was holding that recording device right underneath a, a chorusing tree. And a chorusing tree is where all the cicadas come together because, you know, they all focus on one tree. So it was that very, very loud oscillating mm-hmm. sound. And so I had that um, recording device right under there, and, and it, was, it was loud. Deafening. It was loud. <laughs> it's not anything you need to worry about as far as, you know, um, occupational exposure or health mm-hmm. because it's so momentary, and you can always move away from it. So, right, you know. I remember in this during this brood ten, and you could hear the regular cicada sounds that you would hear from every year, but this year specifically, I noticed it was the sound off in the distance, in the far distance, that really had this weird. It sounded like thousands of car alarms, like a hundred miles away, just going off, and there was a certain kind of yeah. You know what I'm talking? Not just yeah. a regular that, that you heard in the trees nearby, but that long, far distance cicada sound that was just, to me, was really impressive that I hadn't heard in, in previous years with regular cicada broods. Well, Ben, I think you have a trained ear because um, I think what uh, it's easy not to focus on on the depth and, and to analyze sound. And that's one thing I did, uh, as you did. Um, if you're in a chorusing tree, you might just think, oh man, this is loud, this is crazy. But if you listen carefully, you'll hear an individual hmm. right. that'll do its individual song. And it come, and then those, like you said, are off in the distance. So it's like layers of sound. And it just, yeah. it's like a symphony. Right. It is, yeah. And I think I missed, you know, I was, I was away in Texas for the, the big part, the big opening where they came out and did right. their opening numbers. But I think I also have enjoyed it since I've gotten back because I do like the sounds of nature. Mm-hmm. And I can tell they're there because I can hear their their loud sounds, but it doesn't it doesn't annoy me like people say it does. Yeah. Yeah. So I think those people just need to maybe just take a breath and enjoy the sounds. That's you know? right. Especially... And if it really is loud and deafening, you probably just need to to move yourself to another <laughs> location because you're probably standing under a tree full of them, yeah. which I'm sure that could be very loud. But go find a spot just to sit and listen, yeah. um, because it is really cool. And they're not going to be here forever. They're going. They'll be going back underground soon, right? So I mean, how does that work with them? That they'll go back underground and. Yeah, well, they themselves don't go back underground, but the eggs that the females have laid now in the terminal branches will hatch in the next week or two. And these tiny, tiny little cicada uh, nymphs are going to drop down into the soil. Okay. So they're, honestly, as much as I've been around, I have never witnessed that 
hatching of those eggs and those little guys dropping mm. down into the soil. I'd like to. Um, but right now, if you go out and walk around, you'll see many of our large oak trees are starting to get brown on the tips mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. branches. Okay. And that's caused by the female who has put a slit in that softer terminal branch and laid her eggs. And we had a big windstorm last night, and I noticed yeah. a lot of those terminal branches have broken off because mm-hmm. they were weakened by that, um, by that egg laying. I was going to ask because I've noticed, I've, I've, I've heard about how the branches were going to appear dead um, but I've noticed recently a lot of those branches on the ground, and I was curious, well, you just explained how they come out and drop, but I was curious if that was part of the design where they wanted the branch to fall off, and then they crawl into the ground from there, but sounds that's like that's a, not necessarily the case. You know what? That's an interesting, that's an interesting observation. I, yeah. Um, ben gets the gold science star today. I'll take so it. You know, that's worth looking looking into. That could be a master's thesis at the entomology department. But no, seriously, I mean, um, that they do break off. They're weakened. And yeah. so maybe if there's still eggs that are viable in that branch that fell, maybe it's less of a drop for the eggs to hatch. Yeah, I don't know. Elevator and the, down. Yeah, the, the branch <laughs> provides protection from the, you know, the G-forces that they would experience hitting the ground so that's and it gives them a nice yeah breaks their fall capsule. a little bit yeah little by the way that's called flagging because flagging. um even if they don't break off they d- they get brown and then oftentimes you'll see them droops like a flag right. so that's what right. they call that yeah. so any future scientists out there who are about to steal ben's theory for their master thesis he <laughs> spells his last name rogers without the d that's correct and R-O-G-E-R-S. Benjamin Rogers. <laughs> so just make sure you give credit where credit's due um, for that. Um, unless Ben is about to about to quit his PAO job and become a scientist. Uh, because you seem to have the makings for it, Ben. All it's right. awesome. No, that, that, is, that is quite... I think that's very cool. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't have look the experience, you, but that's my hip shot uh, hypothesis there. Eh, look, look I watch a go. lot of documentaries. Look so. at you go. <laughs> What about the tick population here? How are we doing with them? That's my job. I mean, yeah. that's what I do, and 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 I love it. I I, I don't love ticks, but I respect them. The diverse habitat that we're loca- uh, Fort Meade is located in on the uh, coastal plain and and Piedmont, but also, unfortunately, that also supports pretty high tick population numbers. It is a concern because they do transmit disease mm-hmm. diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, Lyme disease is the is the most notable one. But as uh, we study ticks more, we find that there are some other pathogens that are carried by ticks as well. Lyme is still the biggest threat. And and just to share a little bit more information about ticks at Fort Meade and in our area, there are really three major hard ticks that we deal with. Black-legged tick, which some people call the deer tick, the um, lone star tick, and the American dog tick. So three major ones. Those aren't the only species that occur, but those are the the ones that we deal with the most. Mm -hmm. Lyme disease is only transmitted by the black-legged tick. The other species aren't um, able to vector that. So, I mean, yeah, it's here. Um, we do, the, and the military has always had a concern about that. That's why the field uniforms that the Army and the other services wear are treated in the factory with a substance called uh, permethrin, which is very effective in repelling and actually killing ticks that get on the soldiers. So, yeah. And that's been since. And I, I did... We did a story recently, and I did a little research on that because I was curious. I hadn't, I hadn't heard about that. 
I was in the army from 99 to 05. We didn't have that then. They started to do this treatment in 2012, 2013. Uh, the, the new army combat uniforms are come pre-treated. I think that's fantastic. And you can also get this product for your civilian clothing. It is widely available in outdoor outfitting stores and even the more um, commercial ones for field clothing, you know, sportsmen. Uh, you can buy uh, shirts and pants and uh, that are pre-treated in the factory with permethrin. Um, but you also can buy some aerosol cans of the substance and you can treat your own clothing uh, and, and it works really well. What you don't use it for is to put on the skin. It's designed to go into fabric and, okay. and so it's good stuff. Yeah, so if you spend a lot of time outdoors, I know the last place I lived, we were right on the edge of the woods. So it ticks all the time. All I the felt, time. Okay, not all the time, but it feels like a lot. Yeah. Uh, crawling around and I'd find them on me. So yeah. I wish I knew that existed. My husband's holding out on me. He's in the military, but... I, I think that's interesting because I don't even know if the a lot of the soldiers even know that. I don't believe this yeah. was something that's been advertised very loudly. Interesting. That, that's, a, that's a workforce protection issue. That's really yeah. important. The soldiers have an extra layer of protection against ticks and mosquitoes. This works against mosquitoes. It and does, other, yeah. Um, have you come across any medical advancements in identifying and combating Lyme disease? Well, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. Um, that's not my specialty, so I can only share what I know from um, the other um, disciplines. But I do know that, I think maybe two decades ago, there, there was a, a human vaccine that was developed, and it was used for a while. But it, it wasn't successful for many reasons, and it wasn't because it didn't necessarily work. It did work. It no longer was available. But it's, there are vaccines for our pets, our animal, our dogs, and it works really well. People haven't given up, the research community or medical community haven't given up on, on vaccines. And I, the latest word is that in the next couple of years, you'll be seeing, I think, another Lyme or a couple of uh, Lyme vaccines that will become available again. So that's the medical side. Learning more about ticks that then allows us to reduce the threat. There, there's a lot of good information that, that is available. And um, just learning more where the ticks are or aren't and the fact that they're becoming a threat in an area and to raise awareness is a very important mm-hmm. thing. And, and one way we know that now is through citizen science and crowdsourcing and using the tools that are in our pocket, namely the uh, smartphone, we all have computers yes. in our pockets now, huh? Right. Uh, and I'll just give a quick example. There's a great um, outfit out of the University of Rhode Island, and it's a website called um, TickEncounter.org. And uh, they provide a good service of, of giving the m- most accurate and up-to-date information as well as amazing photographs of ticks. So you can go to that website, you can ID them in the different live stages. But also, they have a program called Tick Spotters. And what that allows is folks throughout the country who encounter a tick Mm -hmm. can take a picture of it, hopefully a decent picture, Mm -hmm. and send it, upload it to the website, and they will identify it. They, if it's attached, they will even tell you how long it's been attached by the by how much blood is in the in the abdomen. It's pretty amazing. But here's the thing: it's a two-way street of information. The, the person who submits this image gets information, but they also document where that came from. Oh, cool. So that allows them to track where ticks are found. And they, they have found in the last couple of years that um, species of ticks 
are being found in areas that weren't recorded before. Mm. Oh, wow. Not good news. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, not good news, but at least but we're, it, we're not being blindsided. We're, right. we're tracking it. You mentioned this civilian program to submit ticks. What about military folks like soldiers that are in the field that may have a tick on them or something when they come out of the field? What should they do then? Right. You know, we're, we're fortunate because the military, specifically the Army, has a program called MILTIC. Mm-hmm. And it's one word. It's M-I-L, like military, and then T-I-C-K. Mm-hmm. And what that is, it's a service that's free to military members that if you have a tick attached, you can submit it. It'll be identified. And if it has been attached and is testable, it will be tested for the presence of the pathogen. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go online, and I think you should be able to get there by Googling Miltic, but it's, it's a program by our friends up in Aberdeen Proving Ground mm-hmm. who are called the Army Public Health Center. Mm-hmm. We are the Public Health Command Atlantic. <laughs> I know. Confused. It's like, it's very easy to get us confused, but they're really good people there. They do a lot, but also they have an entomology program and they have this Miltic program. Mm-hmm. So um, it's valuable. It's a great service. They are learning a lot. Again, it's a two way street. You're giving information back to the submitter, but the, we're also getting good data. I will say you need to be, be careful with, with that information because you can't assume that tick that was submitted has caused any kind of disease in the person. There are so many variables between the time that the tick bites you and that it's tested and everything. So it's just an additional tool that could be helpful in diagnosis and treatment, Mm -hmm. but it's not the end-all be-all. So speaking of diagnosis and treatment, what are some things people can do to avoid getting ticks? I know we've talked about the cool spray that you can put on your clothing if you're outdoors a lot. What are some things people can do um, to avoid getting ticks? And then what do we do if we get one on us? All right. Well, there there are some really actually easy things you can do if you're an outdoors person like Mm -hmm. I am and you are. And first of all, when if you go hiking, walk in the middle of the trail. Don't let the vegetation brush you Mm -hmm. because that's where the ticks are, are quest it's called questing they're waiting for a host they don't run they don't jump they don't fall out of trees their strategy is to wait for their host to come to them so if you don't brush against vegetation they're very careful i kind of do a jig when i go hiking i kind of i kind of i you know i avoid that branch i avoid that blade of grass i avoid that but but it does reduce um risk another another tip if you're hiking in the woods and you get tired don't sit on a log hmm. oh i'm i'm a huge log sitter i'm a log sitter too. <laughs> i mean because usually it's like falling over it makes a perfect uh, perfect yeah. nice place to have your lunch don't do it oh, no. because logs harbor field mice hmm. and they have done studies where they've sampled areas in the woods and the tick populations on and near logs are higher than out in the general public wow huh. that's that's new and good information. Yeah. <laughs> okay, another tip. All right. Take a piece of tape with you, masking tape or duct tape, anything sticky, and put a nice little um, uh, piece of that on your, on your shirt or your jacket so that when you do, if you encounter a tick, you can just press it against the tape and it's not going to go anywhere from that point forward. And speaking of tape, if you know you're going to go hiking, 
Um, it's really a good idea to tape the bottom of your pant legs to the top of your boots. Some people say, well, what about if I tuck my, my pants in my socks? Eh, that's okay. Because what, but sometimes sock weaves are kind of, they're loose and mm -hmm. some of the um, small ticks can actually get through that weave. So don't take any, you know, use tape and tape those pant legs. Um, and you know, you might think, well, I'm gonna look funny. But hey, we we spent a year wearing masks, right? Right. <laughs> Putting a little tape on your pant legs isn't going to make you look any any more funny or or bizarre. So. And anybody adamant on the trail is going to understand what you're doing with that. Yeah. It's actually a sign of oh, that person knows what they're doing. Right. Right. Yeah. So so you look super smart. Yeah. Like a scientist if you're scientist wearing duct guy. tape around your boots. But it, it really um, reduces but it makes the threat. Yeah. yeah it totally because makes sense. Uh, most of the ticks are either in the leaf litter or low vegetarian, er, uh, vegetarian, <laughs> low vegetation. <laughs> um, they will bite both vegetarians and not vegetarians. <laughs> they don't but, discriminate. That's but um, but all pretty much all the um, encounters with ticks is below the, the waist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's where you and you want to do frequent checks. You frequently, you know, you want to every I don't know, as often as you can think of it, look down and see if you see them on you. Wearing light-colored uh, clothing helps. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that about um, tucking your pants into your sock and how the weave of the sock. Those ticks, I've seen some of these ticks are tiny, tiny, yes. tiny. Some of them are like the Lone Star, usually a little bit larger when they're more when they're a little bit older but i've i've pulled ticks off of my dog and myself that are just i mean you had to really be looking you know ben that's a perfect segue and i want to present you and sherry with a gift oh um you you brought your own collection yeah. of ticks that a, a piece of uh, tape that i field. brought in from Holy the field cow. and over next to you ben so i can look at that. <laughs> yeah check that out those are um, larval like Lone Star ticks. You mentioned Lone oh Star. God. Now, now they're small. It's just that one one strip of tape. They're they're small, but you still can see them. Yeah, yeah. And if you have a white pants or a white shirt, you'll mm, see them much easier. Yeah. And so, if you know, it's interesting what that what that came from is what we call tick bombs. Okay. Or tick ball. Um, the Lone Star tick female will lay its eggs in. Um, in a mass, and they all will hatch at the same time. But the ticks don't hightail it out of there. They hang out, and they hang out in a, in a cluster so that you can walk, you can be walking down a trail and nothing is on you, nothing is on you, and you'll take a couple of steps, and all of a sudden you have 200, 300 ticks on you. Oh, man. Ah. No. So you got, you got tick bombed. Tick bombed. Yeah. Tick bombed. I will yeah. knock on wood. I, that has not happened to me yet yes. in life, and I do like to hike a lot. So I'm, I'm. So we just need to do the jig. Do the jig. Bring, bring duct <laughs> bring tape, tape. And don't sit on logs. And don't sit on logs and avoid the bomb. Avoid the tick bomb yes, at and, all and costs. Yes, and try and avoid the tick bomb <laughs> because those are so tiny. Like I just, do they? If those got on me and say I wasn't protected, would those bore into my skin like the Lone Star ticks do? And I'm looking at those, and, and for everybody listening, it almost looks like the point of a pen. Yeah, like, they're They're very super small. small. I'm not sure that I'd ever see it. I mean, look look at me. How would I know? Yeah, you got some freckles there yeah, on your arm. Like, that I would mean, be, you'd have to look closer. I, yeah. I would never know. Yeah. Um, you know, the larvae are less um, anxious to feed on on hosts right away. They have to eventually. But okay. when what we found when they're on humans, 
they don't immediately start to attach. So you have time with these small ones. The nymphs and adults, and by the way, I'm using larvae, nymphs, and adults. That's essentially another way of saying um, baby ticks, teenage ticks, mm-hmm. and then adults. adult ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they, that's how they grow and become adults. And, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that, that, oh, no, you can't see them by showing you this because you can see all of them if your um, search yeah, pattern is right. there. Right. And especially the adults, I mean, there's no sure. mistaking them. So, yeah, that's, that's why tape is good. And you should be okay if you're just vigilant in, in looking for the ticks. And when you get home at the end of the day in good bright light in your bathroom and when you take your clothes off, make sure... You examine, you know, all parts yeah. of your body in a mirror. That's important. Is it good to take them out with tweezers? Because I've heard mixed reviews on this. Oh, that's really, if a tick is attached, that's really the only way you should remove yeah. it. With, with no other uh, home tool. remedies right. by putting something on them. Uh, no. A match or something, I've heard. Yeah, don't to... do that. Um, and, I, and I will say this, and I know none of us are medical experts here, but I have gotten ticks on me. I just grab the tweezers. I just, I don't squeeze too tight because I don't want to like chop off its head and leave it <laughs> attached. But just gentle enough that you can pull it out. It doesn't hurt when you That's pull right. them out. Yeah. So like, don't freak out. The first time I was kind of like, ah! yeah, a little panicky. But then I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. So I've been through it for you. If you get a tick on you, don't panic. Just get some tweezers or get somebody to get the tweezers for you if you can't quite <laughs> reach because they like to get in weird spots. And, and just gently pull it out. It might get a little itchy after that. It's not going to hurt, and you're, you're going to be okay. And then, then, you know, get rid of the tick. That was a, a, a great lesson in how to remove the tick. I, yeah. You deserve credit for that. Um, I would only add that you take that um, the, the tweezers, and instead of coming at it from the tail end, try to get it from the side. Mm. So if you have a nice pair of fine-tip tweezers, you're better off that yeah. way and get it out that way. Um, sometimes those mouth parts stay in. It's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean you're at any more risk. It just means that they're, um, you should use some alcohol or antiseptic just to prevent secondary um, you know, infection. Right. Um, but, yeah, why doesn't it hurt? Um, as much as ticks are um, awful uh, as far as causing disease, they are also amazing if you stop and think about it. Their saliva is being studied intently at, at places like Johns Hopkins because it has properties that, uh, new properties are continuing to be discovered. It's made out of proteins, have these amazing, well, first of all, think about it. What does it do? Um, it's an anesthetic. That's why you didn't, you don't, it doesn't hurt when you pull it out and you don't feel it necessarily when the tick bites you. Right. Yeah, you don't. It's, uh, it's a, um, anticoagulant. That tick needs to draw your blood, and if your blood starts um, clogging up, it won't be able to do it, so it has that property. It's an antibacterial. The tick doesn't want other stuff getting in there while it's doing it, it, its its feeding. It's a glue, hmm. right? Not only are the uh, mouth parts barbed so that when they go in, that's one of the reasons it's hard to take them out, but they also emit a glue, a cosmic glue, and that's why sometimes those, those mouth parts stay in and they hmm. break off. So amazing... Tick spit is amazing stuff, and hopefully, <laughs> not just not just you know, isn't this interesting? But there may be properties that they find that actually they might use medically uh, to benefit us. Yeah, that's wow. that's incredible. And when you say mouth parts and and chair, you had said because I've I've had the warning too. Uh, supposedly, you know, when you remove a tick, make sure you get don't leave in the head. And when I say head, you're really thinking. 
it's the the mouth bits that that can get left in there and right. and you say that that's not actually dangerous well you it know, could cause an infection but as long as you keep the site clean and from a pathogen transmission standpoint no just an infection yeah it's of like it's you a get wound, a splinter it's a wound. Sure. and i will tell you you mentioned also all these things if you pay attention to them um you, you can prevent disease but not all black-legged ticks have the pathogen mm. to begin with. Right, right. And that's one of the things that we've been studying over the years, like what percentage of the ticks actually carry the mm. pathogen. And it varies regionally. But at the most, I think, in our area, and this was based on the mill ticks um, data, ticks, probably around 30% of them might carry the pathogen. Right. So it's not 100%. So the, the good news is not all ticks carry the pathogen. So right. even if you're, you're um, bitten by a tick doesn't mean it yeah. you know you're going to get infected but it still exists and you right. got to be of aware of it um you know i also know people uh, who have have gotten lyme disease yes. mm-hmm. and it's it's no joking matter mm-hmm. and yep. it, it you know it does respond to antibiotics so if you're if if you get the rash the bullseye rash um mm-hmm. which is a character a good diagnostic diagnostic sign that um of lyme but only roughly 70 percent of the people who get bitten by ticks and get Lyme have that rash but mm-hmm. be on the lookout for that um, you can you can pre- you can prevent um, you can reduce your risk and also early tick checks um, even if the tick attaches to you it takes a while for if it has that pathogen to actually uh, be transmitted to you it, uh, they say 48 hours so that if the night that you go you're very diligent in checking and there happens to be one attached to you you remove it you, your risk yeah. is is yeah, and that's I think that's that's important. I know a lot of outdoorsy folks, but some people who are like, I'm not outdoorsy. Like I said, when I lived in Edgewater, I'd get them in my own backyard. Just just do a check every night when you go to bed, when you're getting putting your jammies on for the night. Just a quick check. Uh, it'll definitely probably save you a lot of hassle in the long run. Yeah, not not just uh, I'm here on Fort Meade. I mean, just walking your dog around Burba Lake, you can do it. Um I worked in training for a bit before yeah. this, and I've been out to the training lands and the ranges and the, the obstacle course. If you're spending any time out there, chances are you're going to come back with a tick or two. So this is it's vital information. Yeah, no, it, it's great, and I can't wait to tell my daughter because she is deathly afraid of getting a tick <laughs> on her. I don't know what it is, but now um, I think I can sway her a bit to not panic hmm. so right. much. Knowledge is power. That's right. Well, Ben, if someone wants to learn more about bugs, if, so, if some of our listeners are like, you know what, maybe I haven't given bugs a fair chance in insects, sure. where would you send them to learn more? Where's a great place to go? Yeah, I have some, I have some favorite websites. Um, first of all, let's never forget our libraries. You know, yes. they have, they have Absolutely. great books, and there's, there's nothing more peaceful and having the time, not in the screen, to open up a book, mm. to get the smell of that book. <laughs> And there are a lot of field guides out there. That That's another way I got interested, just going through the golden field guides to insects or birds or whatever and just flipping through it. Um, so that's that's one. But if you're going to use our modern tools, uh, I have like two or three favorite websites. One is Bug of the Week. Um, that's uh, run by a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Mike Ropp, who is a professor emeritus from the University of Maryland Entomology Department. He's a great science communicator. He is just like, I, he's my hero. I try to mm-hmm. be like him when I, when I try to talk about things like this. And, and he, he, he's done this for 15 years now. He's put a bug of the week up on his website. Wow. 
and explores in common language um, just the things that we're talking about now. Sure. That's one. Then there's another one called Entomology Today. So it should be remember those two. One is today, one is a week, you know, yeah, but is the right. bug of the week, Entomology Today. That's the um, website for the Entomological Society of America, which is the professional organization for entomologists. And they make it a point of translating some, some of the recent scientific papers into easy-to-understand language. I, I love that site. So those are two. I mentioned Miltic for, you know, if you, there's not a, there is a website, but I think you should get to it just by Googling Miltic. And tickencounter.org, mentioned that for tick um, specific stuff. And there's one more kind of eye candy one. It's um, right down the road at Patuxent um, Research Center is the Bee Inventory and Monitoring Lab, B-I-M-L. It's run by um, a, a guy named uh, Sam Drogi. He's a bee expert, but what he did early on, uh, he believes very much in sharing everything. Mm. And he got the capability a few years ago, using actually Army technology, of taking high-resolution photos of bees, but he also does other insects. The, it's, um, it's a photographic system called stacking software. Mm-hmm where you don't even need a microscope. You use a camera, and you take sandwiched pictures, like 20, 30, 40 pictures, and, it, and it's stitched all together with, a, with software so that nothing is out of focus. Wow. Nice. And um, so that's part of his mission of inventorying all the native bees in the United States. We all know mm. about honeybees, but actually honeybees are not native. They're right. brought in. They're agricultural resources. I'm a oh. beekeeper. I love them, but I'll tell you, I really respect our native bees, right? Uh, thousands and thousands of species, many of them unknown. And he makes it a point of putting images, these high resolution images on a Flickr um, site. Mm. So I think if you go Flickr, bee inventory, or go to his website, you should be able to see it. Uh, Sam doesn't just say, I'm only, my only mission is to photograph bees. He has some of the best pictures of cicadas, and he even has a picture that they put up a couple of weeks ago of the rare blue-eyed cicada, oh. mm. which is not really that rare, but <laughs> but it is. We're used to seeing the red-eyed ones, yeah. I guess, yes. from Brood Ten, but uh... yeah, and this is from Brood Ten. So, oh, really? So it's interesting. Supposed to be red, but it's not. But oh, anyway, cool. so did I give you enough information? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yes, and I think I think probably the biggest one you would say would just be go out in your backyard and look around. Oh yeah. Fireworks and road construction top what's happening at Fort Meade. Fireworks are returning to the parade field this year as we celebrate Independence Day, but it's going to look a little bit different. This year's event will be on Friday, July 2nd at 9.30 p.m. at the parade field. The DOD mask policy and social distancing will be in effect. No pets, no sparklers, no fireworks of your own, no grills, and no glass containers. Leave all of those at home. This event will be a fireworks display only. There will be no food vendors, rides, or live music. Reese Road will be closed between Ernie Pyle and Rose Street through 2022, maybe longer. Find out how your drive will be impacted around the post by this closure by heading over to the Fort Meade Facebook page. Do you want to help plan the future of the region? Anne Arundel County is taking applications for individuals interested in serving on the first round of regional 
plan stakeholder advisory committees. This is all part of the county's plan 2040 general development plan. You'll help develop regional plans. You'll meet regularly to collaborate on goals and actions. You'll make recommendations on proposed zoning changes during this comprehensive zoning process. If you're interested in having a say in the future of Anne Arundel County, which as we know includes a lot of areas surrounding Fort Meade, you can apply at aacounty.org and look for regional plans. We're also going to drop a link to that website in the show notes for this episode. That's what's happening around Fort Meade. Take care, Team Meade. That's it for today's episode of Fort Meade Declassified. Connect with us on Digital Meade, the Garrison's new home for news and events. You can find it on our website at home.army.mil forward slash Meade, where you can also find up-to-date information on COVID-19.